right. Well, good morning. Good morning. I got to read this. This is this is lovely. Pat and Jerry brought this in. This is a little cartoon. Um, it is char the Charles Schultz section. It's called "I Take My Religion Seriously," which is really kind of cool. And it says on here a little. There's I don't know if, if this is a man or a woman, or it looks like two teenagers, but it's probably a husband wife conversation. He has the Bible open and he says, "You can relax. There's not a thing in the entire book of Leviticus against wearing contact lenses." <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's good because I wear contact lenses. I'm so thankful. Thank you. That was a cute little cartoon. Nice, light-hearted message there before we dig into the really heavy, serious stuff. Okay, so um, one of the things that I did, and I don't know if I printed it out or not. I didn't. Okay, uh, I started having trouble again with my computer. I've had on and off again trouble with my computer the last few like month or so and um, it was down like on th this last week and then it was back up again and last night I started having more trouble so I forgot to print something because I got distracted I really wanted my lesson plan printed and so I prayed over my computer and it printed for me so <laughs> no kidding I mean I was like Lord <laughs> this has to print <laughs> and um, so the Lord was gracious um one of the things I like to do, and I've talked about it with you guys before, but as far as just teaching you some inductive Bible study processes, one of the things I really like to do uh, to help me in my training of the disciplines of the process is I like to go through, after I've done most of my homework or, be, or even before, actually before might be better, but I usually do it after, but I like to go back through and look at each day's work and, and assess what it is I did inductively, what the skills were that I exercised. So I go back in, I look at day one and go, okay, day one, first, first instruction is to do an observation worksheet, right? So I, I, I have a, my uh, sheet up on my computer and I put day one, the first thing is observation worksheet. The second thing is look, uh, mark, uh, or take the words that you marked for keywords and make lists. And then the third thing is, you know, then wherever she takes you, if she says do cross references, if she says do word studies, but by doing that, um, it helps me to kind of um, see the system or the flow of what I'm doing in the inductive process and to pay better attention because sometimes what can happen to all of us is in the midst of doing a, su a subject study like this one, this or, or a two chapters it was, chapter five and six, doing such a large amount of work and within each chapter there's so many compartmental situations you had to go into like we had how many subject studies did we have how many issues did and within the each of the issues it kind of broke down into two or three points right and each of them were themselves independent kinds of studies that could been done and so by stopping and evaluating in that way going back through the homework and just looking to see what did I do inductively um, if you're not super familiar with all the skills Use your how-to study book chapters, uh, probably basically chapter two mostly, but it can be one, two, or three. Um, and use, use that 
reference, that resource reference of training to go back in and look at day one, what did I do? Day two, what did I do? Day three, what did I do? And by doing that, it's going to help you to better clarify in your mind exactly what these processes are and why you did what you did. So you don't get lost, I don't think, so much in the um, in the work itself of, oh, now I'm looking at this and now I'm looking at this and you feel like, how am I, I'm not, feel like I'm not tying it all together. What am I doing wrong? If you sometimes feel like you're drowning in all this stuff, it's really helpful to just uh, pinpoint what the, what the uh, structure of your homework was about. And that kind of clarifies. And for me, that's really often what helps me, and it did again this week, um, when I then am trying to prepare a lesson plan and try to figure out how it is I'm going to present this, because sometimes you're overwhelmed with so much, right? I know. <laughs> Lisa's going, yes. <laughs> and she and I have had many conversations on this, because she's teaching herself now these inductive classes. And um, it really can become a challenge to kind of streamline what it is you want to cover. The other thing is, obviously, with this many things out there, it, it, it's going to be an impossibility for us to do it all, right? I cannot methodically take you through every one of the steps that we did and, and cover it all. So what I have to do is kind of back up and say, okay, what's probably the most important thing here in this scheme of things? What is it that's been going on in this Corinthian church? And what is this letter about? Do you remember what the purposes of this book and pardon okay the first thing we saw about this book is there was the subject of divisions so when Paul begins to address the subject of divisions how what does he uh, how does he attack that in those first four chapters what does he do how does it broken down do you remember you can just take a look at your chapter titles. If you have your uh, at-a-glance chart handy, that will be helpful to you. In chapter 1, what was causing divisions? Right. There you go. The bottom line was they had taken their eyes off of God, who was to be the one who was to, to be leading them, who was to be their primary example, right, of things, and also their, their hearts, uh, affection for why they're even doing some of the things that they were doing, right? And instead, they got bogged down in kind of clicks. We don't, we don't deal with that anymore, though, right? We don't have a problem with that in any of our churches of people breaking off in little groups and saying, basically, I'm of this person or I'm of that. Well, huh, yeah, right. Well, yes, we do. So in chapter one, he says, basically, don't be boasting in men. Stay focused upon the Lord, right? You are to boast in the Lord. And then in chapter two, concerning divisions, how did he handle the subject? What, when, they were, when they were boasting in men in chapter 1 and breaking down to these cliques and taking their eyes off of the Lord, once they put their eyes upon men, what in the, in the Greek world especially, but I would say even in a lot of academia-type uh, uh, environments, and Austin is definitely one of them, right, where you get a lot of people who, have, who are what I call the, the more highbrow, they're, they're much more educated, which is all a good positive thing. However, sometimes what happens with people who get a lot of education, what do they start trusting in? The wisdom itself, the wisdom of men, right? Um, my daughter has 
become a, a Christian counselor. So she counsels, right? One of the things that I have seen in most of my years concerning counseling situations is often, what do you think they get sucked into? Through, even through their training. Even if it's good Christian training, where do they go? Yeah, they go into psychology. They go into the into Freud and I can't even name the the people because I don't really know that area. But if they start relying on the wisdom of men, what can happen to even Christian counselors? Right? Is there count good is their counsel if they've lost sight of where real wisdom comes from? Right? Okay, so in chapter 2, he's basically saying, let your faith rest on the wisdom of God, not on the wisdom of men. Don't put your faith in that wisdom. Put your faith in the wisdom of true knowledge, of, of true faith. Now, this subject of where uh, true faith, faith is or where true wisdom is or what, quote, truth is, comes up for us again, does it not, in chapter 5 and 6, where he says, how are we to celebrate the Feast of Passover? Not with the bread of unleaven, or, or of leaven, but with the bread of unleaven, and in what? In two things, sincerity and truth. So where does truth come from? Did Paul demonstrate in any way to us in chapter 5 and 6 where real truth does come from? How did he, where did Paul get his authority to do the things that we, we uh, observed this week, right? That's something you have to think about for five seconds. We're going to cover that, and I want to pull us back into that. But this foundation of putting your faith and resting your faith in the wisdom of men rather than in the wisdom of God, it is a slippery slope, and we can fall into it so quickly. We don't even, we don't realize we're doing it. We start going online and researching men rather than going back to the, to the heart of where our true knowledge comes from, which is the word of God. I gotta say, it is more challenging and requires much more discipline for us to go to God instead of going to the world. It's much easier, especially in our world today of computers, to Google something and look for the answer. But, the, but is that really the wisest uh, method of handling life's issues, right? He, he said in chapter 2, they couldn't even, they weren't even handling the matters of life, but they were allowing it to go where? To the court, to the secular court systems. Do, do we do that today? Of course not. We would never, right? Have we gotten better or worse? <laughs> Come on, it's okay to confess. <laughs> I think we've gotten worse. Now, you know, th this lesson is not about the fact that there is never a time for a, a legal system. He's not saying that at all. Uh, there are other scriptures which I didn't even touch on, but did any of you go in to look at other uh, references in scripture about when it is appropriate to, to go to courts and what is God's attitude about uh, judicial systems and the law? What is the, Romans tells us about the law. What is the law there for? Who is it there for? Come on. Lisa, you're teaching Romans, right? Yes. Okay. The law is there to point us always towards Christ. That's the point of it. Well, yes, the, that law. But what about the judicial law of the of civilian world? What is that law there for? Who is it there for? The evildoers, the lawbreakers, exactly. So there, are, there is a time and a place, and, and God says, um, render unto Caesar, what? 
what's due season. So there are plenty of verses, and I didn't even look at them, but um, so I'm kind of talking off the cuff here a little bit. <laughs> but there are plenty of, of scriptures that teach that God wants us to obey the laws of the land, right? And that we that the laws of the land are actually there, and they're ordained by God himself. Um, however, within the Christian church, we have a problem with people relying on the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. So this was what he actually, interestingly, all the way back in chapter 2, has already laid an established truth for us to fall back on as kind of a plumb line. You know, I always say, what are your pillars or your plumb lines of truth that you'd never violate your known doctrines, right? The known doctrine that's already been established in 1 Corinthians is that real wisdom comes from where? From God himself. Chapter 2. Okay, then chapter 3, he says, concerning divisions among them. What? There you go. You belong to Christ. Do not boast in men. Again, it's just back to refocusing the attention. Hold on a second. Let me, uh, I'm going to put that right there. Hold on. Okay, um, their problem was that they were walking as mere men in chapter 3, right? And as mere men, what is the default button for all of us? The flesh. It's the default button, and it, it, the interesting thing is that it's, uh, it, it's addressed and it's brought up in chapter 3, but then we're going to see it come up again when we hit in chapter 5 and 6. That same default mechanism that Paul is going to basically say, you have to master it, you have to resist falling back into that, and it's really cool the way he handles the, the second half of chapter 6, and he puts in a default mechanism that, that uh, puts some constraints on them for how they're going to handle this subject of judging, right? And so back in chapter 3, he's already expressed and, and, and established, again, a plumb line, a pillar of truth about why we need these mechanisms that keep us within boundaries. You know, even the fact that we have laws that God gave, how, how many people do you know are totally cool with all the laws of God? Yeah, right. Not very many. How, how about among, uh, you know, we know the world is not, but how about among Christians? Not even among Christians. How often do we in, within the church have disagreements and struggles back and forth concerning um, this particular subject which we are going to be hitting on, which is the subject of holiness, maintaining holiness within the household of faith. And there are people who have varying gifts, and that's another subject later down the road, but if you've got a really strong mercy gift, what happens when it comes to the subject of needing to discipline? Yeah. What if you're a person who has a, a prophet gift? Whack! Right? So you got both spectrums. You got the one who's ready to wham them down on the head and the other one who's going, oh, but you know, right? So what we have to have is in God's family and is to utilize the balance of both sides of the spectrum. And what Paul does in chapter 6 is he brings it together and he gives them a a boundary of moral code that they, they're going to have to live by and, and submit to and 
acknowledge, right, that they are men of flesh. So he said that back in chapter three, three, you are men of flesh. This is how you are walking. Is he talking to the unsaved world in chapter three? When he says you're men of flesh? No, he's talking to the church. He's saying you are defaulting back to your natural flesh rather than walking uh, according to to both truth and love and sincerity and and uh, and uh, and really a correct assessment of who we are as a body. In chapter three, I find it really interesting how he actually brings it into this subject subliminally about my favorite thing, which is covenant. That in covenant we are one and we're on the same team. We are fellow workers, right? So he says, "Do not walk as mere men. Remember that you belong to God." Right? Okay. Then chapter four. Is this kind of helping you warm up a little bit? Because it helps to kind of get your mind back in. It's also really helpful to go back and look at what he's laid down foundationally and how it applies to what he does in the next step in this book. Um, There are discussions among uh, the theologians and various people much smarter than I am about, you know, was even chapter uh, one through four or one through six possibly a separate letter from the rest of it and they were somehow merged together maybe he started a letter thought he was done and then picked it up and added in because he got new information I mean there's all these discussions and I'm like you know what it's very amazing to me it really doesn't matter although I think it's interesting to know that they actually think first and second Corinthians is actually in the middle that there was a first Corinthians and there was another one at the end and we've lost a couple of them somewhere in there so these are actually other books along the way but under divine inspiration, God protected those books which he wanted us to have. Do you believe that? I do too. And knowing that, even how Paul came about to write this book, even if there had been some uh, a beginning of a, of a conversation, he thought he was finished and then he added more at the end, it doesn't matter. It's still under divine inspiration. His instructions to the church are there for our welfare and for God's holiness protection, that his name would be, would be uh, proclaimed, that he would be brought glory by the way the church lives out their faith. So we keep all that in mind. Chapter four then, one last thing on the divisions, how does he handle that? How are, how are they to overcome the problem of divisions in chapter four? Yes. Right. So how does, positionally, how does recognizing where you fit in the spectrum of God's work, how does that help us to basically um, rein in the problem of division? If you want to stop division in your household, if you're a parent, you've got five or six kids and they're all fighting about something, right? What is it that a wise parent often will do? They will throw out there, hey kids, if we all get this work done, we're gonna go to the swimming pool this afternoon and we'll picnic afterwards, right? So, you, w- so what has that parent just done for those children? by telling them about something that they're looking forward to. What happens? Thank you very much. It unifies them. All of a sudden, 
the two the two kids who were fighting over who had to take out the trash and who had to run the vacuum stops because they're going oh yeah let's get it done you do this I'll do this and they go right and they do it and I've seen it happen in my house over and over with my children so here we have a situation that's in chapter four where they've had these divisions the divisions are there because of the flesh their divisions are there because they've lost their focus upon their first love according to revelations the letter to if uh, Ephesus was you've forgotten your first love and that is in fact what they had done so he talks about their first first love he talks about their um that real wisdom comes from God and stop relying on men stop going to the world for your wisdom because it's not from the world that you get this glorious relationship that you have in faith and then he goes here in chapter four and he's saying now what is going to now bring us together to stop division you're going to recognize that we are all servants right and servants of who and what does he bring up in chapter 4, verse 5? What subject? Again, and he's brought it up several times before. There's a day of judgment coming and the day of the Lord, which for Christians who, who feel a, a sense of peace before God and they're not in turmoil, right, in, about whether they're going to go to heaven or not, but Christians who, who absolutely know I'm going to heaven, the concept of we're going to stand before the judgment uh, seat of Christ that our works will be judged is that a fearful thing should that be a fearful thing no it should not it should be a glorious you should be looking forward to it Paul is looking forward to it he speaks of it and he says you are my joy and my crown in that day he speaks of uh, the churches that he has ministered to. He is looking forward to the day. Now, obviously, there'll be some loss of reward for every one of us. No one is perfect, right? We're going to have some things that in our lives that we're not doing perfectly. However, the bigger picture, the overall writing picture in your life should be a day of anticipation of the day of the Lord, coming to, to um, receive uh, basically, uh, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we're working for, right? All right, so in 1 Corinthians 4, he reminds them then that we are all servants of Christ and stewards of God. All right, so that was chapter 4. Now, that's our warm-up that kind of reminds you of where the progression of where we've gone. He's laid down some really important things. And then when you, when you look in uh, 5 and 6, do not isolate what you just learned in 1 through 4 and forget about it. He's laid down, you know, it wouldn't hurt if you took a few minutes, and I haven't done it either, I, I just kind of came to me, um, but to sit down and, and write down on a piece of paper some, some what you would consider fundamental doctrines that you've been learning thus far. What are some principles he's been laying down in each of the chapters? You don't have to get too detailed. Look at the big picture and just say, I'm learning this about, about my faith walk, and this is what I know about who I am. Who, you know, I always think about, you know, what is the purpose of these writings? Well, in Genesis, it's who is God and who is man, and who is man in relationship to God. That's what basically Genesis is all about, right? So when you and I go through the word of God, knowing who is God and who, who is man, would you say that's an important fundamental doctrine to, to know and hold fast as you're moving through? Yeah, come on. Yes, <laughs> of course it is. And so in ch in First Corinthians, as we are progressing through this book, going back and looking to see what are some fundamental truths that he's laid out so far. What are the doctrines of 
of the gospel and of who is man and who is God that God has given to us thus far through the demonstration of Paul's writing here so that we can fall back on them because as we go into four and five or five and six rather right now in particular if we don't hold fast to those we can go waywardly in five and six and many have they take five and six out of their proper placement in the bigger picture of, of doctrine and how the church is to function. Um, and it's the sub, for instance, the subject of judging is, um, do you think First uh, Corinthians five and six exhausts the subject of judgment or of discipline? No. Or of holiness? Um, or of um, the bro a brother's responsibility, and where you know, asking yourselves questions like, where, do, what about authority? Did you see the authority of Paul going on in these chapters? How he so boldly says, "Look, I have already judged the one who's done such a thing," and some people with that mercy gift would look at that and go, "Wow, that's really harsh, right?" But what is it that we need to keep in mind? the whole context. We also need to keep in mind no one subject is fully developed in any one passage. You need the whole counsel of God's word if you're going to thoroughly study any subject. So how are we going to take the information that Paul is addressing and interpret correctly so that we don't come away either almost wrathful in the way that we're going to treat people or come away being indignant to the way that Paul treated this church and and how he wanted this young man or this man I don't know how old he was but this man to be treated in response to to his sin we have to we really have to find a nice balance and all that and keep in mind the whole counsel of God's word okay so with that in mind let's get started I'm going to just ask you a few questions tell me what you found for keywords when you went through chapter five what are your keywords in chapter five Okay, immorality was a big one. When you looked at immorality and you made your list on it, we're not going to list all this on the board right now, but tell me, when you looked at immorality, did he also take that and expound it into additional sins, kind of clumping them all together? Yeah, okay, so what were, give me a, a rendition of some of those other things. Yes, exactly. And in, in all the way back on verse 11 and uh, uh, also, well, even 13, but 11 in particular. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you when you look at how Paul addresses? He is certainly addressing the immoral man, and that is a specific kind of sin, right? But what does he then do by making mention of all the rest of these other kinds of sins? He does. Right. Now, I, I'm not so sure that he's trying to rank them. Do you think so? No, he's really not. I, and I think that's an important message for us to get. What he's really saying is um, sinful behavior, wickedness or, or sinfulness of any kind of nature is abhorrent to God, right? We're going to talk about that more when we look in Leviticus in particular. But... Um, why are these issues so important to Paul in his addressing the, of this church? What do you think might be behind what's going on in his thinking concerning 
them not addressing a, a sin, especially such an overt one. There you go. Okay, so another key word is that word arrogance, right? Now, that was a tricky word. Did you not think so? Because, you know, in our mind, arrogance is what? Right, thinking that you're superior, and it's more of an attitude of being puffed up with pride, that taking joy or delight in something in an excessive manner. But would you say that's an, a good application of understanding in this passage, that they are, that there's a pridefulness of, no, I really don't think so. It, it, there is pride, but it's a different kind of pride. It's, it's subtly, it comes from a little different angle. So let's look at these couple of things. We see that there, the problem in chapter one then, although you've, you found many other key words, we also looked at the word judge or decide, that should have been marked. Um, the word unrighteous, right? The immoral brother. Now, I know you've marked the word immoral, but you should also have identified the person, the immoral brother, because he's a key figure in this, right? Um, the, uh, the, another word would be to remove or to clean out, right? Uh, it almost goes in line with the idea of to expel or to remove or, or removing, right, of the wicked man, he's, he's eventually going to say. Um, and that actually, though, the arrogant has a contrasting thought in here. Do, did you, any of you catch it? They had not mourned instead. So, and rather they had boasted. He goes into the next sentence and he says, rather you're boasting, Right? Uh, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. But then he goes, uh, he goes down in verse 6 and he says about them what? Your boasting is not good. So he, somehow this arrogance has to do with a boasting and this boasting has to do with them not doing what? Not mourning, and the, and the action that they did not do was to remove that one who was committing this wicked thing, right? So let's look at this. There is a, it's actually a twofold problem that he's addressing. There's really two things going on here, right? The, the first thing is that immoral man, right? The immoral man. And so it's easy to get all wrapped up in only that and only see that subject that's going on. But there's a secondary problem that Paul is actually addressing. It's kind of like he handles the immoral man to me on the side. But what is his real problem? Okay, the, ma the man and, the, and we see symbolically he uses that subject of the Passover and of leaven, talks about what that represents, right? But besides that immoral situation, what is his real concern here? Thank you. The church's inability to judge it, and not just an inability, they had an ability, but their refusal. Would you say their refusal then might identify the subject of arrogance? Their arrogance is they are refusing to do what they know they should do, right? So that... Two, 
two problems here, the immoral man and the church's refusal to discipline. Oh, I don't, it could be, a fa and I, I wouldn't call it being lazy in their not wanting to get up and do something, but I would maybe, let me slightly or subtly change that word of lazy to apathy. What is their apathy toward? There you go. The apathy is toward immorality, toward sinning. Their apathy might also be, do you remember as we close, is it chapter 6? Hold on, let me look, make sure. Yes, the close of chapter 6, he, in verse 20, he closes this whole, out, whole thing out by exhorting them to do what? Glorify God in your body. So if, if, his, if the contrast to to what they're not doing at the beginning of five is they're refusing to take action on behalf of the immoral man and he concludes it at the other end by saying glorify God in your body what is the apathy also about not just wanting to not handle the problem but it's all, it's an apathy toward toward who God himself is towards the holiness of God. Um, I told you all a couple weeks back that one of the sermons I had listened to on this was um, a man who went into Leviticus thoroughly, and his whole focus was on the holiness of God and why what was going on in this church in this particular instant was so egregious. Did you grab hold of that better, having looked in Leviticus 18 and 20 this, this last week? Yes, Lisa. I think, you know, we studied the reluctant prophet. I think this is the reluctant church. Yeah. It doesn't want to be a church. And yeah, you know, that's not a bad, it's not a bad conclusion. It seems like they're reluctant. That's why I went to the word apathy. I felt like uh, kind of like, you know, the term lazy or apathetic or undisciplined in their own right. These are church members who are supposed to be leaders. And what are they not doing? They're forgoing their responsibility and leading. Uh huh. There's a hate that we are to have. There's a hate evil. So they're, they're not hating. There you go. I love that. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, but it's true. We are to hate evil and to love good. Um, there's scriptures that actually that cover that. That I think that's in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Is am I right? Lisa should find that for us real quick because she's into that. Lisa, I'm throwing all the Romans references back your way, dear. She's teaching Romans right now. <laughs> Where are you guys in Romans right now? Oh, well, you're getting close to 12. It's in, I'll give you a hint. It's in 12. I think it's about halfway through. Yeah. I was going to say, in 4.18, he starts talking about their arrogance. And it's kind of like they could have started chapter 5 at 4.18. Very good point. That's exactly right. And, and in many ways, this is what tells me that even if this is an add-on thought after, he went back and he made the connection. And boy, is it a divinely inspired connection. And when you look in 5 and 6 and relate it back to what the foundations he's already set in in those first four, even though we're into a different subject, they are not isolated points that he's making. They are woven together with the doctrinal truths of, of um, who we are in Christ, who God is, who man is, what our relationship is, what covenant is, although the subject covenant never comes up, all of its qualifiers do. You know, what is it that you have responsibility to be to do on behalf of Christ if, in fact, you are in covenant with him, right? What about 
this deal in chapter um, six where it talks about them going and suing one another, going to court against one another. He call, he, what does he tell them that this is to them? It's a defeat all right, just by the very fact that you're going to lawsuits against your brothers, whom, by the way, you are in covenant with, is already a defeat for you. And then how does he counter that? He says, rather, wouldn't it be better if what? If you, why not just be defrauded by them? Take, take the punch in the gut if you got to take it. Um, I think about Matthew, what it's, where it talks about um, uh, being reviled or being persecuted for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. You know, that for the sake of right doing that you endure, there's going to be this blessing that God is going to give to us. Yes. Yes, Romans 12, 1. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. It, how hard is that in reality? Because I mean, it's so easy for us to sit here and talk about this, right? How... You know, I don't want to hear all the details, but I'm just thinking in your mind, how many of us, and I bet you everyone in here, have had a situation where you have been seriously wronged, and you want, you kind of want your day of judgment, right? You kind of want that righteous verdict. You want the world to know they did that thing to you, right? But by doing the things that this church is doing, what is happening to the church it is. It's, it's again almost back to the first four chapters causing some division, right? And, but it's also secondarily this apathetic attitude toward holiness in the church is also causing another kind of division which is far more serious, which is what? That's right. A division between us and the Lord. Yes. No, I don't believe there were, was. In our day, there's so many Christian Yes. I have a wrong from another Christian in another church. You just leave and come here. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Oh. My church will take care of it for me. Your church will know. Right. No. No. Yes, Jerry. What is his expectation in here? What is he telling? What is the very next verse 13 say? Because there's your answer. Yeah, outside. Verse, yeah, verse. But those who are outside, God judges. But what is he telling us to do? We are to judge inside. Yeah, yeah. Now, with, now Pat, the, 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 I think the error of that thinking is that we are isolated as churches. How does God view us as Christians? All one church. How bad is it when you hear about divisions between churches where they're bickering back and forth with, even with one another over things? They're doing this and we're doing this. And how do you think that, that 
fares with the unsaved world, the unbelieving world, as they watch. There you go. It brings ridicule. D you know, there was a passage in Ezekiel. I think it was, um, might have been like in 36, but it, I'm not sure. Um, I remember when we studied Ezekiel, though, that, you know, the whole thing was about how God one day is going to vindicate his holy name, right? What had Israel done before the nations that caused such a problem that God actually exiled them out of the land? had profaned his holy name. Is that a problem in the church today? Does or do you think these issues are another way of profaning God's holy name? Are they as serious? Okay. Wow. Yeah. And yet, are we going to judge? No, Lisa, the answer is yes. <laughs> Yeah, but we don't. You're right. And so, you know, I think it's, I think when one of the most important things, when, when he encourages us to celebrate the feast with unleavened bread in sincerity and truth, if you and I slow down and do what we are doing in this room, which is really study the word of God to see what it is that God says about how to handle it. Now I can tell you this though, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. When you go out and you get into a room full of people who haven't studied it, you're going to find opposition even among the believers. What is the solution then? How do we get the, the church on the whole on board with doing God's work God's way? How do we get them there? What do they say about um, sunlight? What does sunlight do to all sin? It's a disinfectant, right? Bring it into the sunlight and let the sunlight disinfect it. Where is our sunlight coming from? God himself, from the word of God. So everything always goes back to, you have to understand God from what he says about himself, not from what we think and how we feel about it. So it's not what we think, it's not what we feel, it's what does God say? And so this homework that we did this week is invaluable to us. Here's going to be the problem, though, is that resisting flesh that some of us have who say it's unkind, it's, it's mean. Uh, not only that, but it makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to go there, right? Um, I can tell you I am not a confronter, even though you guys probably think I am. <laughs> I am a rule keeper and I hate it when others break rules and when I break rules I am just you know demoralized by it it just crushes me um, especially if I get called on it it's really embarrassing to me however I don't want to confront others about their failures it's not in me however would you say that this particular study that we've just done in first Corinthians 5 and 6 is something that really is a it's a a calling, it's the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. That there's a purpose behind this because what is the ultimate goal for us as the church? Yeah. He, in Leviticus, he concluded that one passage we did is this, be holy for I am holy, right? So if that's the goal is to emulate the holiness of God to the world and be a testimony of that, then we, it is absolutely required of us to get on board with what it takes to attain holiness. Now, will we ever get to a place of perfection in that? 
Why not? Glorification. Yes, we will. Oh, yes, thank you, <laughs> Lisa. Yes, you, you jumped too far, far ahead. Aha! <laughs> you, you win. <laughs> but in this life and in this human church, we aren't going to ever get there. But does that mean we don't try? Okay, yes. Yeah. Right, right. I can tell you I know that all my all my life, you know, within my the inner circle of my uh family, I've you know, they they look at me as one who's judgmental. When the reality is what I do is I I see things from God's perspective and I know right from wrong. So any subject that comes up and I say no, that's wrong, they see me as judging. But it's because they, they don't have a perspective of God's view on it, and they don't want to submit to that view that God has, even though I have. And so there I sit going, how do I, with diplomacy and with kindness, but also in sincerity and truth, hold fast to those things which I know are truth. And in the end... Are you still going to get the rejection from the world and from family sometimes? Yeah. So is that to dissuade you, or is that is that something that should actually spur you on? Well, it comes back to interpretation. Okay, yeah. It really comes back to what I think he established in ver chapters 1 through 4, and that is, who do you belong to? Who are you actually keeping your focus on? Who is it that you are serving? And do you understand you're in a covenant relationship not only with God, but with the body of Christ? And so there's this, this responsibility to love one another, which includes love your neighbor as yourself, includes discipline. Uh, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about that, right? That a father, even a natural earthly father disciplines his own children. Why not so much more your heavenly father, right? Yes. In chapter 4, verse 3, there's an examination that Paul talks about himself that he doesn't accept from other people. Mm -hmm. so this seems to be That's perfect. That was good. Yes. You can judge me in the church, but I'm not going to listen to you because I have one who judges me. Right. Right, and in the context of what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 4, he's, he's telling them, don't judge what about me? Not my sin, right? Right, so in, uh, in, let me look at it here, hold on a second. It, yeah, because in, on the one hand, he's saying, don't judge. Right, in chapters 1 through 4. But in starting in 5 and 6, he's saying do, do judge. So what is the difference between don't judge and do judge? What is the subject in 1 through 4? Don't judge men in what capacity? Their value, their standing, how highly regard them. Look at them as on an equal 
playing field with you. They are fellow workers in Christ. Don't judge my ministry as a teacher, for instance, and measure me against another teacher you like better. We each have our own ministry from the Lord, and we are to work in that and know that one day God will judge that, and God will give reward for those who do it well or not, right? There'll be loss of some reward, and there'll be reward for some who do well, who honor him in it. Don't judge people against one another and try to elevate one above another. We are, there's an, you know, I got to, I always have to throw this one out here though. I have a little sign on my wall that says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite, (laughs) right? Um, But that's not true, is it? I should probably take it down, but I love it. (laughs) I use it with my, with my husband pretty regular. (laughs) Um, And he knows it's all in kidding. Yes, that's right. Um, all right, so let's let's move on here. Twofold problem: the immoral man and the and the church's refusal to discipline. So that's when we get these two those two basic words. The first one was immorality. We've discussed what that all entails. It's in the case of this particular man in chapter five. Um, how would you describe the immorality? It's really bad. It's 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 pretty outlandish. As a matter of fact, Paul, when Paul talks about it in verse one, he says, "What? Say it again, Martha." Right. So what does that tell you about the Gentiles? <laughs> Some of them were actually being more holy than the man who called himself a brother and was in amongst them living in this church and committing this heinous crime. Now, uh, Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under heaven, right? There, all things have come around, go around again. So what have we learned when we went back to Leviticus about this subject of a man who has his father's wife? It so you mean it was around all the way back in the days of of Israel coming out of Egypt and coming in to take possession of their land. It was such a such a difficult situation that God had not only did God cover that one, but did you notice all the other perversion? That one was was that an uncomfortable chapter to read or what? It really it really is. However, this is interesting to me. Because what does Paul do when he goes into, um, uh, in chapter 6, when he goes into those passages about, let's see, wait a second, it wasn't 6, it was in chapter 5. In chapter 5, when he talks about the, the Passover, he makes this relationship about what this immoral man did, and then he draws in something from the Passover. Why does he do that? I mean, does it seem odd to you, or did it seem odd to you at first, that the subject of Passover just comes up in the middle of this passage about this man committing an immoral sin? Did it seem strange to you a little bit? How did it actually weave itself out for you as you progressively went through the homework? Why do you think Paul brings up the Passover? What, how does he use it? Okay, so he's, he's teaching them or reminding them of something they already know, right? So what does that tell you about the subject of sin and what God expects about concerning sin? 
they were expected to remove the leaven and they understood they were to remove the leaven and that was a basically it's a known truth right a known so he goes back to a known to remind them about something that they already knew right Yes, and not only the Jews, but uh, this Corinthian church, because it was founded in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the, the Jewish system of faith, they who came into this faith would have been instructed as well on these things. They would have been told about these Old Testament laws and the things that um, Israel had gone through. They would have had to be trained just like we are having to be trained. But this is a church that was, were they unaware of this ancient practice in the Passover of removing leaven? No. As a matter of fact, let's see, um, verse 6, when he talks about this, what is the phrase in there that you see? Do you not know? Now, what does that actually mean? You do know, <laughs> right? Because you do know. So he, it doesn't matter if fact, only in five is only used once, but when you get into six, it's like I think five or six times in that chapter, right? And every single time he makes the statement about what's known, that's an absolute no-brainer, like, duh, you know this, right? And so then he makes a declarative statement concerning that which they, they are doing contrary to what they actually already know. So what Paul has done in chapter 5 is, is, is he starts out by saying, this man was immoral. And he's saying it's an, an immorality which is not even done among the pagans. So do they know better than to commit this kind of immorality, even on the human level? It kind of makes me think of Romans 1 where it talks about you know, how men are, are, know things. That it's, you know, there are certain things that are just... So obvious that even the, the heavens declare these things, right? All right, let's go here. Immoral and um, so immorality, and it's known to them. Known um, uh, truths, let's put it that way. Known truths. So here's number one even the pagans, even the Gentiles, it says right? Don't do these things. That was the first one. The other one was, do you not know? So these tell us that they knew these things. That's in uh, 5, um, 6. This one was in 5, 1. So, because one of the questions that Kay posed to us in our homework was, did they know that they were supposed to discipline and the answer is absolutely they did. Now, if you didn't spend the time doing the homework, you would not get to this place. But by simply observing the fact that he mentions the Gentiles even know better. So in other words, you wouldn't have to be a church member to know that what they were, this guy was doing was wrong. Even the, un, the unsaved world doesn't generally, by common practice, participate in this kind of thing. It's, it's repulsive even to them right? And then he says, do, do you not know, indicating that they do know, they understand that, do you not know about leaven, basically, right? About leaven. And what was leaven symbolic of? Sin. And he says, it is to be removed, right? So this is something that they did know. And then he says, um, 
his instruction also had, there had been an instruction, right? Is this the first time Paul had addressed this problem of immorality and, uh, and, how, and what they were supposed to do or not do concerning a brother that was living like this? Is it the first time? When had he done it previous? When had, had they had this instruction before? Okay, now take me to your text and show me how we know that he had instructed them. Okay, very good. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with There you go. There was a previous letter. Even though he, Glenn is right, he had actually lived among them and taught them face to face. But he also uh, uh, makes reference to a previous letter where he actually addressed this specific thing. Now that letter we don't have. We don't, you know, it's the lost letter, right? But he makes reference to it as though they understand he's addressed this with them before. So um, immorality, what they knew. What they knew. Okay? Th these are the known truths. Even Gentiles don't do this. You do know about leaven and sin and that it's to be removed. And you know I said, a previous letter was sent. So we, it's not like they didn't know they were supposed to do this. And so we can't let them off the hook. Although there are a lot of people who would want to, right? Um, the other problem then was, that I mean, that kind of settles the problem right there of, what they what they knew, what they should have done, how overt this was. We didn't dig into Leviticus together, but we've kind of touched on it here. We understand how overt this. As a matter of fact, when you looked at Leviticus, did you happen to pay attention to God's perspective about those things? What were some of the ways that God um, identifies those things that they were doing, these overt sins? Abomination, Abomination was a big word that came out. Depravity. They, they are things which defile. Any others? I haven't, I haven't found my sheet yet. And perversion. Okay. And what were the consequences? We didn't talk about that yet. But what did God institute within the law as a consequence for people who committed these kinds of things? Death. Did anybody understand that term, blood guiltiness? Do you know what blood guiltiness actually means? Did, were you able to kind of discern it from the, the whole context of that? Because it, it kept saying blood guiltiness is upon him, blood guiltiness is upon him. Okay, very, okay, right. So sin has to be the, either atoned by the blood of the sacrifice for them in the Old Testament, right? Or there's another way it could be atoned for. Well, there's that. Th that's another subject. But, but in the text of Leviticus, he told them what to do. What was it were they as a congregation to do? Be cut off, which could mean just be put away from the, the group. And the other one was? 
to put to kill them death blood guiltiness their own blood had to be shed for the sin uh, do you guys remember there's a lot of times in the old testament where because we came out of kings and prophets we looked at a lot of times where if blood was shed then it had to be atoned for with more bloodshed and god himself often did that he would come in with it with a slaying angel to atone for david's sins for instance um so blood guiltiness could it's basically it's speaking about a capital offense where death is required so in many of these cases god implemented the death penalty for these things right that's right that's right right oh that's really good absolutely because it yeah is it is is discipline of a of an individual supposed to be laid on the head of just your pastor is he to bear the burden of you know casting someone out yes mm-hmm right now that's very it's interesting you bring that up we 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 know that as we said earlier that not all instruction about discipline is covered in this one chapter in first corinthians 5 so what Kay did is she did take us to matthew 18 right so in matthew 18 it covers another quality of this now in the matthew 18 basically give me the rendition you were told to list out step by step how you are to handle it and in this case what is the sin and and against whom is the sin there you go is one brother sinning against another and so what is that brother to do when he is sinned against yeah so you are to to go and reprove him privately okay that's the first thing you do now if he does not listen here's my little ear right and he won't listen what do you do next okay so take one or two as witnesses and again address the problem and then what what is what happens then if he doesn't listen now you're going to go you're going to take it to the church now this is interesting you think that would do it right but if that doesn't do it then what's the last thing you do expel him as a gentile now, what does that mean? He's like an unbeliever. Like an unbeliever. Now, how do we treat? How do we, the church? How do we treat unbelievers? All right, God will judge them in their sin. Okay. I also think, quite honestly. There's another subject that just came to my head about this, and that is assessing correctly where a person is actually standing in their faith walk. It's important because, and I do think this is why he brings up the so-called brother, right? Um, If this is a person who is claiming to be a brother in Christ, and yet, what is his behavior portraying? 
as if he's not. And so all we can do is read the signs. We can't read the heart. We're not God, right? So we can't make a judgment on him as far as condemning him, saying you are not saved. However, we can look at his behavior. And that's why God's word teaches us that we can judge people who are in sin and allow then God to do the work in it. Um, We don't have to know exactly where they stand. However, do you think it's important to try to make an assessment as to where a person stands? How does that help you relate better with the person? Well, I think it, I think it calls into question when you're working with them or talking to them, you realize as you're going through that what you thought about them may not have been true. They may not be a believer. Right. Does that change... Does that change the way you're going to deal with them then, your relationship with them? Because, and also, can it actually even soften your heart toward them a little? So how is it that you're to treat an unbeliever or a Gentile? I'm not there yet. Well, I know. I know. know. Well, we do good in some scenarios, and we don't do quite as well in others. And, you know, I can tell you, I, I know that in my personal relationship with family members, it's harder to be gracious within my own family sometimes than it is because I have an expectation of their um, loving me also and showing grace toward me to some degree should be based just on the basis of family family, right? And when you don't get that, you really feel a deeper hurt. But but remove the family situations and go to the bigger picture of this case is the new moral man within the church. He's not a, he's not a familia family member. He is a church member. And he is behaving in an immoral manner. And we are to exercise discipline toward him, right? But when we expel him according to these steps, a person... Now, I kind of conflicted two things there. I didn't mean to. When we are handling a brother who has sinned against us, not this immoral man, but a brother who has sinned against us, if we go through this this many steps of trying to turn him, to bring him to repentance, right, Um, and he won't repent, what is that an indication of? How fast do you think these steps go? How, how quickly do they generally transpire? Not that, fast. Not that fast. I mean, there is a few days in between each of the steps, right? Maybe even a few weeks between each of the steps, right? So what should be happening to a man who has the Holy Spirit within him, who's been confronted first one-on-one, and then two or three have come, and they're standing with the man who's got the complaint, which tells you something, right? And then they go to the whole church, and now the whole church is in agreement this man has to repent, and he still doesn't. Now we're maybe a month, or we're maybe two months, or three months down the road, and the man is still not repentant. What does that tell you? Pride. There's pride in there, okay? <laughs> there you go, there's a hardness of heart. Now, we are not saying, you know, that we can make absolute assessments as to whether that person is or is not saved. However, when they're behaving as an unbeliever, what does this tell us? Treat them like an unbeliever. If they're going to act like an unbeliever, treat them like an Im- unbeliever. Now, why expel them? What's the function of that for? To bring them back. Yes. 
That's right. Now, see, it's not as clear if you aren't really careful to look and examine with all these pieces. When you go into Matthew 18, it's one piece of the puzzle. But then when you go into 1 Corinthians 5, it's another little piece of the puzzle, right? And then there are other places as well, like James and, um, I, I can't think of the, James is the one that I pulled up, James 5.20, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. And is what is it, what does he say in First Corinthians that collaborates or 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 complements that? There you go, verse five. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting all the possibilities and what that means to deliver him over to Satan for destruction of the flesh. Um, we don't have time to really dig that out thoroughly, and we didn't do it in our homework. But the spectrum on that can be everything from from the worst scenario, which is it would be a sin unto their death where God, you would release them back out into the world and they eventually, God would take their life and, you know, but th their expelling would be for the betterment then of the church and that God would can judge them and deal with them in their flesh by sometimes there is sin unto death, right? We've talked about that before in our class, like with Moses where he had sinned against God and God put him on his deathbed, right? And, and had Sapphira not, done what God had commanded, he would have he would have died, right? That doesn't mean he wasn't saved. It just means that it would have been a sin unto his death because he had disobeyed the Lord. So we have now the other side of this, uh, uh, a destruction of the flesh might be also what else? If it's not physical death, what else could it be? illnesses. First Corinthians 11 is going to address it. Some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. So there's the three qualities that are possible. Um, in what happens when you are a believer in a, in a place like Corinth, which we talked about the environment of Corinth, the licentiousness, the worldliness of it, the corruption of it, and you have been a member of a very small community of believers because the church was fairly small in that time. I've been to that Corinth place and you know it wasn't the church that they show us that that was still existing or that there are little bits of ruins to small. So you know you're talking a few hundred at a time probably at that point in history. So you've got a small community and what happens when you're expelled? And, and what are they not to do? not even to eat a meal with them. So you cannot find your best friend from church and meet up with them after they get out of church and go have lunch with them, not even to eat a meal. So when you've been cut off in that manner, how do you think that affects them in their flesh? It, yeah, it, it's a harsh word to think of, but in in a event in in actuality, that is really the the point. Why the shunning then? Back to what Robert said, which is that he would recognize his loss, right? That he would his heart would somehow destruction of the flesh could also be the idea of of 
uh, crushing that, that spiritual warfare that's going on within him so that the flesh is crushed. Remember he says you are walking in the flesh and not walking in the spirit. A destruction of the flesh from the spiritual realm of things could be this discipline it would effectually do that, crushing that flesh in him so that then he, he would turn around and come back into the spiritual holiness. So this is the process that's to stop here. You're not to go use the court. You're not to go get the Yeah, yeah. Was taken or whatever was wrong. You're not to pursue that. Right. Go ahead and just take it. Right. Right. That, that's right. Because this is it. Because this is really, it's about the relationship. It's about the sin. It's about him being with, with God. So what else matters? Yeah, well, and so the consequences of his immorality is not, you know, often people think that when we sin, it's we're an island. Well, it's just me. It's just my life, right? But is that true? No. Your sin, my sin, affects everyone in the realm of my touch. It affects my immediate family. It affects my ministry, whenever, whatever I'm doing in ministry. It affects people who I encounter and have engaging conversation with. What if the, the grocery store guy down the road hears about this man's immorality and now this man's coming in and out. He's supposed to be a witness, right? He's wearing the cloak that says, I belong to Jesus. I've been, you know, crucified with Christ, but has he? And so what is happening with, with the witness of Jesus by the man's behavior and the church's lack of disciplining it? It's a big problem, isn't it? Profaning the name of God. There we go. Back to profaning. Yeah. You know, it's really sad, but I really don't think we often, what happens is, is we emotionally can get wrapped up into that poor guy, he's, yeah, he's sinning, but he just didn't know better, and we want to give him excuses, and we want to, although this one's pretty tough to do, it's overt. This, this sin was not minor stuff. His, this was an overt sin that he was doing. Over here, this had to do with, um, you know, an offense against a brother, right? It was um, an offense. How do you spell offense? There we go. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Do shorthand and pretend it's right. <laughs> Offense against a brother. But over here, this is we're speaking about overt sin. Right? It's it's really in your face sin. Very good. And that was where I was hoping to draw you all into. Can you see, basically, there are situations which demand a response differently? Have you ever been a parent where a child does an offense, he knows better, he's been taught better, he knows the rules, he breaks the rules, and, and what he did was so egregious and so either dangerous or so in the face you know, I'm going to defy you, that that's it, right? You're done. And you handle it, right, in that moment. There are other things where you tend to do what with your children? Warn them, and then you warn them again, and then you warn If I have to come up there, and right, you're patient with them. So I, 
I think that the I, the concept here is to really get the bigger picture about discipline. Discipline is there's not a one size fits all for every situation. It does require, therefore, what inside of the person who is going to discipline. Yes, go back to, go over to chapter six, where he he says in verse five something about this, right? What does he say? Yeah. Yeah. So what he subtly makes note of here is that the ones who should be, you know, kind of leading the way in this kind of discipline are those who have wisdom. It does require a mature person. You know, Paul, Paul addresses this more than once about that they are infants, as Glenn brought it up earlier. And we've talked about it earlier also in chapters 1 through 4. He refers to them as being infants. And that's why a lot of the problems that they're facing are there. Um, Hebrews chapter 5, again, you should be teachers by now, but instead you're still you know, babies on milk. Um, there are this maturity, uh, this this requirement of growing in faith and growing in maturity. Maturity to discern and maturity to make wise choices is something that you have to grow into. You don't start there. You don't hand over the reins uh, of leadership to an un to a young believer. Scripture is really clear about that, right? When you're picking your elders, when you're picking your uh, uh, the other kinds of leaders, even those who are going to wait tables, which are the deacons, even they are to be the mature, right? So when it comes to discipline, there should be some kind of maturity level that's that's leading the way in this. And in that maturity, as Paul has demonstrated, there are times to come down hard and fast. There are other times when you need to take the take your time and go through the processes. Now, my first my first thought in chapter five was that maybe they had already done these steps with this man, right? But the problem is Paul confronts them and calls them what? Arrogant. And in that word arrogant, what's the implication then about their attitude toward this problem? They have not. They have not been disciplining. They have not taken it seriously. And as a matter of fact, he challenges them even on their heart towards this. When he opens it up in the beginning, he says, um, verse 2, what did they not, not done? They had not even mourned. Mourned over what? Over his sin. So if they, ha if they themselves have not even mourned over sin, do you think they had done any of this? Yeah? And you mourn for those whom you love. Yes. You right. And you mourn for the sake of the name of Christ. You mourn for the sake of the, the reputation of your church. You mourn for the sake of the body of Christ who is being corrupted by the leaven of this sin. There's a, 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 there's a multitude of, of qualities of what they should have been mourning over that should have propelled them to take action, right? But they had not mourned. Instead, they were arrogant. And the next, verse, the next statement is they were boasting, basically, aren't we so tolerant, 
right? So this tells us they probably had not done any of this, even though this is uh, something that we should know about it and we need to fall back on it. And the very end of it is to expel him. But Paul did not do that. So would you say there are times even in our church today that we should not necessarily have to go through all this? That if the sin is that overt and that um, destructive, to the holy name of God and to the church itself, that sometimes action needs to be taken immediately, and then deal with reconciling them back. Right? Would you say that that's a truth statement in how we're assessing what we've looked at this week? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So he's telling them, you have been arrogant, and then he tells them, remove him. So that was in 2 and 30? Thir- 13, that's right, 13. Okay, thank you. No, there really isn't, but um, obviously there is some leadership that's been there. At one of the points earlier, he says, I'm sending my brother who is going to immolate me, and you're to follow him as though you had followed me. So there are leaders that are there and that have been put in place and that come and go. Um, Certainly there's always, just by functionality of anything, there's always somebody that steps up to take a leadership position. and it's usually someone that's assigned. I mean, the apostles themselves often name this person is going to be over this and that. So we can assume that they did have a leader, but the fact that he doesn't address it to me sends a very clear message that who is he talking to? Every one of you are responsible for this. So for, the, for those of us who don't like to confront, right, and who want a coward in the back row, what he's saying to every one of us is individually each one of us need to, to step up to the plate on this because the business of, of, of protecting the holiness of God's name and the holiness of the church itself is every individual member's responsibility. It starts first at home with morally keeping our own lives in check, right? Which is why she also took us then to um, Matthew 7, because that was another quality about, um, and this is the one where we really kind of have to correct people's thinking on all the time, right? Because what's the famous quote that you hear out of Matthew 7 all the time concerning judging? Yeah. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, what did you realize was the actual truth in what was being taught there? Okay. Don't be a hypocrite. When you judge. Uh, Now, how do you solve that according to that passage? Okay, deal, <laughs> there you go. This is like, too, this is real minor stuff. It's like pointing out little, you know, we all have our little whatever, not sins, just little things that we need to be careful about. Yeah. 
Matthew 7, who was he talking to when he gave that commandment? It was on the Sermon on the Mount. And who, who were the people that were there? The disciples. And who were the leaders of that day that he often had to speak to them? <laughs> the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he, what was he basically therefore saying? Look, if you're going to run around judging everyone else and putting heavy burdens upon their backs, right? Which is what those Pharisees and Sadducees were so famous for doing in that day. He's saying, before you go and start pointing out someone else's sin, you better be taking a look at in the mirror, right? So he's not saying, don't judge, is he? That passage actually is not saying, don't judge. Is it a, is it a prohibition to never judge? How does he conclude those verses 1 through 7 in, Ma in Matthew? Yeah, and he, yes, yes, and then, but he does say then after you have examined yourself, then what? Go and judge, right? But you only, only judge after you, only judge, after self-examination. There's other verses that cover this also that talks about to least you fall also into the same sin, for instance, right? I think Paul talks about it. But, he's, but in this case, this is Jesus himself saying, all I'm telling you is, is rule of thumb here is, is if you're going to be a judge, you make sure you're living your life in a manner which can hold up to the heat as well. Don't fall victim of judging another person for something that you yourself do. There, there, I like the passage that says in, about people who make them twice the sons of the devil that they themselves are because they don't live up to right the, the gospel in the message of, of um, Jesus. So deal with your own sins first. Only judge after self-examination, but then go judge, right? Then go judge. But he's just saying make sure. Now why do you think he's doing that? Because of who he's talking to. He's basically saying, don't get arrogant in this and don't think that you're all that and that you have no problems, right? Don't just run around correcting everyone else all the time. Do you know people like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you did this and you did this and you did it, but everybody's looking at them going, yeah, what did you do, right? But they don't see it in themselves. So I think that it requires a humble heart that goes before the Lord first. And that's all uh, Matthew 7 is speaking of. So people who say, well, judge not, at least you be judged. That is not a prohibition to judging. Um, that's a really good example of what's happened in our churches. What you just said, you don't know the word of God well enough to know what Right. No, that's totally out of context. I have heard it preached so badly so many times. <coughs> that's when I get real up, uh, uptight because it's like, I just have a hard time when a, particularly a person who's going to preach, if you haven't at least examined it thoroughly enough to know, all it took was for us, how long? Two or three minutes of looking at it. You're going, oh, I see. 
He's just saying, check yourself out first, then go judge, right? He says it this way, then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. So the expectation is there that you do go and do the judging, but first examine yourself just to make sure that you're not being hi a hypocrite in your judging. And the object of our judging is not <coughs> condemnation. That's right. That's exactly right. Ab that's absolutely correct. Um, all right, let's talk about the so-called brother first for just a moment. So I just want to point out, whatever this person was doing, was so great, everybody knew it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Chloe's people came and reported all this, right? <coughs> yes. I heard a man pronounce that name Chloe, too. It's not pronounced Chloe it's because it's Greek, probably, and it's basically a man's last name. So it's the family of whoever this man was that went and reported. I thought that was interesting. Um, okay, so-called brother. Let's talk about this so-called brother. Now, Kay had us look at 1 John uh, 3, verses 4 to 10. But I'm going to add a couple more here for you. 1 John 2, 4, and also Matthew 7. 21. Would somebody look up these two verses for me? And, and also, the, the uh, let, I need three people. 1 John 3, 4 to 10. Who has that one? It was in the homework. Takes me a while sometimes to find my page 50 on homework. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> I gave myself notes as I was going through this for my benefit. Yeah, somebody read that for us, just to refresh our memories, because there's so much in these lessons to cover. Right. Oh, that's right. It's at the end of our observation. That's right. No, you're right. That's that's correct. Very good. No, that was good. Okay, so the, it's it's in the observation worksheet. It's right at the end of your homework lesson. Okay, so what is, now? If, for those of you who have never studied First John, the whole thing about First John is he's refuting Gnosticism in that book. So, uh, so what he keeps doing in the whole book is on the one side he says this is what they say. These are the lies. And then, then he turns around and says, but this is the truth, right? And so he, there's this constant battle back and forth. And so when he gets into this subject about the sin of, of men who claim to be believers, he, what is his, his um, truth message in all of that? What does he say? Will someone look at First uh, John 2, 4 also, because it's a good another one. You got it? Okay. There you go. So now, does that mean Christians never sin? No. Go back to chapter 1, verse 9, because he starts the book out in 1, 9, talking to believers and telling them what they need to do when they do sin. What does he say there? Give us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Very good, Susan. Nice memory verse. Good job. So, so if we, so in that particular verse, it's clearly understood that a believer does have occasional sin, right? So when he speaks in chapter two and chapter three, then about this uh, a sinner who's in the church who c- claims to be a believer, but they are living habitually in sin and by the way kind of like what we see here you go to him and he he won't be reproved and he and finally in the end you have to expel him because what what is it the second our first john says he's basically he's a liar if he says he loves god but he won't keep god's commandments and no matter no matter how much you show him where he's wrong it's either one of two things. He is either so far into a stronghold in his life that he needs to be, as Paul says, cast out into the world amongst Satan and his devises to be for the destruction of his flesh, either by death or by destruction of that stronghold in him so that he comes to repentance, or he's not a believer at all to begin with and he should be cast out anyway, right? Uh, there's another passage. He says, what does light have to do with darkness? right? Why, this is why God says believers are not to date or to marry unbelievers, because there's this unholy com, uh, communion if you do this, and it causes nothing but heartache. It's what happened in the days of Noah, when the sons of God married the, the daughters of men, and they had an unholy union, and in the end, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, when they're about to go into the land, God says, don't do this. Don't let your sons take their daughters. Don't let your daughters take their sons. If they do, they will. Cor- their hearts will be corrupted. They'll be turned away from me, and I will have to cast them out of the land. Before he destroyed the whole earth, he's made a promise he won't do that again. In Deuteronomy, he says, I'll cast you out of the land. Well, what happened? Yeah, <laughs> right. He got, they got cast out of the land right so in first john he basically says there's a there's kind of a a a system of measuring whether or not making a way of discerning now go to um, matthew seven twenty one and see what jesus says about this in case you're not buying off on this first john thing yet <laughs> let's let's put a nail on it okay matthew seven twenty one. Wow. So again, Jesus himself says the evidence, and another one is in James. James says faith without works is, is a dead faith. It's not even a true faith. You can claim to know God all you want, but if you're not living according to righteousness, if you're not obeying God's word, if you're not receptive to correction and rebuke so that your heart is turned, then there's a chance that you don't know the Lord. Or there's the other option, which is you're just a, a liar about it. You're in the church for an unknown reason that benefits you for other things. But either way, that kind of sinning that is going on, the immorality of this man was the first one. It's the kind of sin that, boom, got to go. Now, don't even discuss it. Don't, you don't need time. You don't need to try to convince them. You just, you know, they got to be gone. And then deal with them. After you cast him out, then you go to him as an unbeliever, as a Gentile, as a tax collector, and you try to win them over, right? But then there's the other kind of sins, which are more subdued kinds of things, which might fall in the categories of some of these other things that were mentioned, revilers and drunkards, and although those seem pretty 
wild and out there too. They're, they may be the ones that are handled in this way, according to Matthew 18, where you go pro through a process with them. And if you can't turn them, then you let them out of the, of the community. Whew. Good stuff, guys. Authority. We've got 10 minutes. I want to talk about authority. By what authority do we have to actually do these things? Because it's pretty... Um, uh, kind of like with Matthew 7 is, you know, it's pretty, it's almost an arrogance in some regards. It can be perceived as an arrogance for you to just go and say, I'm going to judge you, right? Then we don't want to ever kind of come off that way. Yes, Martha. There you go. Authority to judge is number one by the name of Jesus, I'm shortening this a whole lot, by the name of Jesus, and um, where do I have it? And the power. And even, you know, Paul, who was their spiritual father, like, I've already made the judgment to deliver, so he is somebody who's in leadership over them and an I just think it's interesting too that he uses the word our Lord in this over and over and over. Have you met, have you noticed how often he he goes back to understanding there is an authority over all of this. The authority is empowered to you. It is it is it is given to you. That authority is being given to you. But that authority first and foremost is that you have a relationship with a Lord, and a Lord by definition is a master, a ruler a king, right? So his authority is over you and therefore then you are qualified to also have authority over others. We, l we also looked at um, another way of the, the second, that is, I'm just going to put number one, that's the first thing by his name. The second thing was seen in the, the, the subject of Passover, right? Th this is a principle that has been taught principles of truth uh, basically that are already in the word of God. I, I would love to go into Matthew where Peter is makes the confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and then Jesus gives him authority then to either to uh, bind and to loose, right? And then you see him in the book of Acts, binding and loosing. He's saying this is true and this is not true. And one of the things he did is he did a binding and a loosing when he went before the um, council and said the Gentiles received in the same way we did. And he lays it out before them and, he, and that's his authority. He is binding and loosing in that moment. It's a really cool principle that you have authority, but what is the authority? When Jesus said to Peter, this did not come to you by your own knowledge. This was given to you by who? Where did he get the wisdom that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? My father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So it's the knowledge, these principles of truth that are already established in the word of God that Paul goes back to in our text. He goes back to the Passover. And that's he, one of his foundations of authority for correcting, saying to them, cast it out, get rid of the sin. You know it's a truth. It's a principle of holiness. And P.S. and by the way, God's holiness laws never die. That's why in James, he talks about the royal law, that we are to keep the royal law. What is the royal law? 
basically um was it who was it that said love the lord your god with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself was that you brenda or was you okay okay so that's the principle it goes back to the royal law falls back on those two things loving god and loving your your fellow man and not violating those two therefore fulfills the royal law and within that royal law is a law of holiness Leviticus, although there are some specifics about how they were to govern as a nation, the principles underlining them never die. So moral law about sexuality, about even sexual identity, uh, the, prob the problems that we are having in our nation today, you know, uh, can can two men marry or can two women marry what is what is this the principle that's been taught no you and why not what in the word of God yes okay he calls it an abomination that's a holiness law and that cannot be violated and one of the things that's very interesting is he actually says it in here he says for what does a prostitute have to do with you basically right and when the two become one they become one flesh right now we're back to the subject of marriage right so if 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 these sexual relations are are confined to the marriage relationship and what is it about the marriage relationship in Ephesians 6 that, that Jesus does? What does he, how does he use that in Ephesians? Do you remember? He compares the husband and wife's relationship to Christ in the church. Did you not, do you not know that marriage is actually a gospel message to the world? It is the husband and the wife representing Christ and his bride. Now, can you have two women and do that? Can you have two men and do that? So it's a holiness law again, right? Look at all the things that we could go into in this subject. I mean, this these two chapters are loaded. Yes, Lisa. Whoops. Right. Well, several of the American people who were Christian pulled her aside later and gave her a list of. Do not say these words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But one of the other things was that I thought was so interesting was condemnation or that, oh my gosh, I've embarrassed myself. Or that's what it, she didn't have any of that. She was so. Because she was, and oh, that's awesome. And she was teachable. Yeah, she was teachable. Oh, and she didn't because God understood she didn't know. Exactly. You are, you are, you know, this is kind of unintentional sin, sin, right? I yes. Yes. Absolutely. This is why this process, if you're really a believer, should work. Yeah. It should work. Right. Then you reteach them. That's the whole point. And the, you know what's really hard 
uh, I think in the whole scenario is, is whether they will be teachable to you or not. Because if you're coming to them to correct them or to rebuke them about a sin, often they just shut a door to you. You know, I know in my personal life, I've had experience on both sides of it where I've totally rejected the rebuke. And other times when I have received the rebuke, and I can tell you it's much sweeter when you receive it. Even though you're embarrassed in the moment and you have to make a confession and try to make it right, uh, in the end, that person's response to you is like this overwhelming f fondness of, and the, the bond that gets reunited between you and them is stronger than had you not gone through a storm together. Um, but to re refuse it, to reject it, and to rebel, and then to go into that rebellion for any long period of time, then eventually there has to be an expelling in order to correct that sin. Because you can't let the sin remain. If you know it's a sin which is going to affect, infect the whole body. What do we now know about leaven if it's, if it's put into the dough? It affects, it affects the whole thing. That's how God views it, and God says it very clearly. Now, he counters it, the authority to judge by the name of Jesus and the power of our Lord. It's by principles of truth that are in the word of God, and he demonstrated that to us with the Passover. And then it's also by, uh, by authority of pure motives and correct doctrine, okay? I know. And so what we have to agree on, if we're working within the household of faith with believers, the truth is God's word. And this I can tell you, even as a teacher in, this cla in, the, in these classrooms that I teach with you all, sometimes it really does come up to a place of saying, but this is what God says. You know, this is why I like to write things on the board and make it black and white. So it's not, m Katie says this, but this is what God says. And if we can, if you've done a thorough job of doing your homework, you're following this whole conversation quite easily, right? And you may be expounding your insights and you're, you're developing it further, but there's no argument because what we're doing is we're sticking to what does the scripture say, right? So we have an agreement that truth is established because it's God's word, which is what was established in chapters one through four, where he says real wisdom is from God, not from men, right? Um, okay, so here we have sincerity and truth. So I looked up these two words. Uh, sincerity means purity of motives. Um, and therefore, how do we see that demonstrated in verse five? What is he, his goal? His soul be saved, right. Okay, so that his soul be saved in the day of the Lord. And then also there's a secondary one in verse 6 because he's also concerned about what? Yeah, the whole. The whole lump is he's concerning about. He's worried about the whole church being infected and having a, a negative outcome because sin is not being addressed. Does that happen in our churches today where sin is left unchecked? And in the end, it just can destroy a church, can it? When people are bickering behind the scenes and they're dividing out into camps, 
right? And the, the, a church will split even and go the separate ways. If, it, if this were handled correctly, they could have avoided the split if they would address discipline problems from the beginning. Also, an understanding of leadership. Who is your leader? If your leader needs to be corrected, you correct him. But if he's your leader and he's right, he's doctrinally on target, he's, he's operating in sincerity and truth, you need to submit and not be a problem to him. Right? The scripture talks on that as well. All right, now, so that's about the sincerity. And then the truth, he says, we are to celebrate in truth. So I looked up the word truth, and it says, what is true in things pertaining to God and the duties of man? It is moral and religious truth. And so what is the moral truth? Christ was sacrificed, he says in verse 7, right? What is the truth? Christ was sacrificed. for sin. And if he was if he died for sin to to deal with sin, to put sin away, then he says in Galatians 2:20, I am crucified with Christ when I come into relationship with him. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in God, right? We are to walk according to holiness principles. Holiness principles, God's ancient laws from the old, this is why the Old Testament is still prevalent. It is still effectual. It still matters. Romans uh, 14 says, these things have been written for your edification and for your instruction, right? I think it's in four or five of, of Romans 4. Anyway, so Christ was sacrificed for sin is the next thing that he brings up. So basically, do not treat his sacrifice lightly by tolerating sin. And then he goes on to say, in, in also in 7, you are in fact unleavened. You are saved. What did you learn when you looked at that chart of the, the feast? How did you read that? Once you did all of this, we were supposed to go and look at this feast, and we're going to wrap it up with this. I wish I had time to do more, because I still have tons on here, but out of room, out of time. But w when you look at um, these, did you notice how they're split up into spring feasts and fall feasts? What do we know about the spring feasts? Fulfilled or unfulfilled? They're fulfilled. What about the fall feasts? Unfulfilled. They are yet to be fulfilled. In the these first four feasts, in the spring feasts, these, are these things are which things pertain to Jesus' first coming. The things in the fall feast pertain to Jesus' second coming, right? The first one pertains to us being the church, establishing of the church, right? The fall feast pertain to what? Establishing his kingdom and Israel's redemption, right? Israel as a nation's redemption. So when you look at Christ our Passover, what happened on the day where he says, you are in fact unleavened? What is he saying about us then? You have been what? Saved. You have been justified. You have been, in fact, purged, washed, all those things, right? So that's what you see in the Passover on that very first part of Passover. Passover, by the way, is a collection of feasts, not just one thing. It's, it's a collection, if you didn't figure that out. So there's... If you want to put an S at the end of feasts, 
of Passover that would help you a lot. <laughs> so the feasts of Passover, the first one is the actual Passover day, which is the sacrificing of the lamb. Follow it immediately with another uh, feast, and it is distinctive, but it's all kind of in the same, uh, it's a cause and effect thing, is the day of unleavened bread, or the week of unleavened bread. Seven days, no unleavened. And what is their purpose in, in that? Purging sin. And, and who does it? Who did the first? Who did the first feast? Who took care of the first feast uh, on the cross? Where you see the cross? Who took care of that cross? Jesus did. Who takes care of the second feast of unleavened bread? We do. So well, the first one is justification. What do you think the second one is picturing for us? Sanctification. Isn't that cool? Now, what do you think is the next one? The next one is the the uh, first fruits. Correct. And what happens there? What happened on first fruits? 50 days, day of Pentecost. The, the, oh, I'm sorry. First fruits was, first was, I'm sorry, you're right. Don't let me confuse you, and I just did. I went into Pentecost. What happens on first fruits? What happened there? Christ was raised. What is that pic picturing for us? Glorification. Isn't that awesome? So we have justification, sanctification, and glorification all pictured in those first three things. The next one is the birth of what? The church itself. But isn't it interesting to, to you and me both, I think, at least it was to me, that even in the old system under the law, there was a work that was to be done by the, the high priest, who Jesus becomes our great high priest. His work was the sacrificing, right, the bloodshed. But then the people were to be engaged in cleaning out the sin for seven days. Is that not symbolic? What does that tell you and I in our relationship with God as his church. We have, we have to keep cleaning it out. And that's why, did you notice when he follows that he says, therefore let us celebrate the feast. In other words, daily, day in, day out, as God's children, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, if you're going to judge, you make sure that your sincerity is pure, that you have pure motives, that it's for his soul's sake, and that it's for the sake of the body of Christ itself. And it's done in truth, and that is the truth is that Jesus was sacrificed for sin. That's why your sin has to go. That's why it has to be purged out. It cannot be tolerated. Good stuff, Good stuff guys. And